We continue the Shear in Nabi, in Jewish history. Last Shear we discussed the story of Shmuel Hanavi, the birth of Shmuel the prophet, and how he rose to a point where he actually heard Hashem speak to him for the first time. The last part of the story, the manner in which Hashem spoke to him, is related to a story that the Benazal told. In the Sipuri Maisias, stories the Benazal told that deal with heavenly secrets, the most important of all the stories, the holiest of all, is the 13th story called the Zion Bettlers, the Seven Beggars. These deal with the seven greatest tzaddikim of all time, or the seven greatest qualities found in a tzaddik, in a tzaddik emiss. Someday we'll have that story in detail. At one point in that story, the fourth day, the fourth tzaddik told his story about his greatness. Strangely, his talent consisted of the power of ventriloquism. He spoke about the existence of two birds, a couple, the only type of its kind in the world, these two birds who were very close to each other, very affectionate to each other, who were separated from each other. They could not locate one another, and so they settled two distant cities about a thousand miles apart. And the sadness that prevailed at night the cries of these two birds were so bitter that all the people in the city around them had to join in in the wailing, moaning, and crying of these birds. Now, this Sadiq said he has the power of bringing these two birds together. And of course, in brief, these two birds stand for the Shekhinah, which has become separated from its origin, that is the Golas, the reason for the Golas. Bringing these two birds together means to make the Yichud, to unite once more Kuchabrechu Shchintei, Hashem and the Shechinah. How will he do this? Through the power of ventriloquism, these two birds cannot find one another. He'll go to one and he'll throw his voice, imitating the sound of this bird, and cast his voice to a distance, to a point, where the second bird will hear it. This way, drawing that second bird closer until eventually they will meet, they'll be united, that'll be the end of the Golas, and there'll be once more the Yichud, this combination, this unity, or this second wedding, Kaviyoho. Now, this ventriloquism means that he will throw his voice that distance, but no one in between will be able to hear the sound of his voice. Only the one that it's intended for. In that manner, he can then bring these two together. The origin, Abedazal says, of that power, we find in the story of Shmuel the prophet. The case we spoke about last time, where Shmuel the prophet was lying at a distance from the holy ark, and then Hashem spoke to him, where only Shmuel the prophet heard it, who was lying distant from the ark, and not Eli the Kohen Gadol, who was much closer to the holy ark. Which means that the sound of Hashem had skipped over the place where Eli was sleeping, was lying, and reached Shmuel Hanavi. This is like ventriloquism, where a voice can be carried or thrown at a distance. And what is meant by this, of course, 
we cannot really fathom the depth of Rabbeinazal's words. What we do understand, it means that the voice of Hashem, just in the, as in the case of these two birds, is cast at a distance to the one that Hashem desires. It is this desire of Hashem to be united with the tzaddik, just as the tzaddik wants to be united with Hashem. And that's why the voice of Hashem reached Shmuel Hanavi, who was the tzaddik emiss at that time. This is a small elaboration on the story we had till now. Now we continue on. The succeeding part of the story is where we know that Eli, the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, was warned about his sons being evil and that he would eventually lose them, he would lose his position, and that harm would befall him in future generations, and there was evil in the offering for the Jewish people in general. A short time later, the war broke out. The Philistines, or the arch enemies of the Jews, came, attacked the Jews, and in his first day's battle, 4,000 Jews were killed. Into that day, the Jews assembled, and they decided that they must have an unusually powerful weapon with which to deal against the Philistines. If they could get a secret weapon that can actually destroy the Philistines at one time, that would save the Jewish people, and it would destroy their enemy. They decided the secret weapon was to take out the Holy Ark, carry it with them into battle, and of course, naturally, Hashem would defend his holy ark with tablets in it. And just as he would defend, supervise the safety of the holy ark, so too would he supervise the safety, guard the safety of the Jewish nation, the Jewish army. They did this the next day. When the Philistines saw the holy ark being brought out to the battle, at first they were terrified. They said, this is the Hashem who performed the miracles for the Jews in Egypt, the ten plagues, the Egyptians were wiped out, destroyed at the Red Sea too. What is the solution? They said the only solution is to fill ourselves with courage, go out into battle, and defeat the Jews, and Kaviachal, the Holy Ark too. Philistines did this. In this battle, 30,000 Jews were killed, and the Holy Ark was captured by the Philistines. This is what the Pasuk tells us. Actually, Medrash goes further and says the Holy Ark was captured by the Philistines, but there is a definite tie with a story that took place much later on. We find that the Philistines, being the archenemy of the Jews, had their special hero. The hero of the Philistines was a giant named Goliath, Goliath, who later challenged the Jews to battle, challenged one of the Jews to face him alone in battle, and the Jews were stricken with fear. At that time, the king was King Shaul. He asked for a volunteer. No one would dare to go forth to venture into battle against Goliath, <coughs> till King David came along and defeated Goliath. This is the story we know of Goliath later on. Medrash says that it wasn't just later on. That story had its beginning, had its inception, in this case too. In this battle, 
the Philistines were terrified of the Holy Ark, there was one among them who said he would undertake the battle against the Holy Ark itself. So much so that to take it captive would be the most glorious act possible for the enemies of the Jews. And so Goliath himself swung into battle against the Jews and single-handedly captured the Holy Ark. Now, this was, of course, besides the loss of the 30,000 Jews who were killed, plus the two sons of Eli, the Kohen Godot, who died in this battle too, it was a very heartbreaking loss for the Jews to see the Holy Ark being taken. There was one young man among the Jews of the Jewish army whose name was Shaul, a future first king of the Jews who had a tremendous amount of courage. He could not live with himself to see the Holy Ark being taken. And so, alone, he ran forward into the density of the battle against Goliath. He opened the Holy Ark, withdrew the luchos, the tablets, and fled. He did it so quickly, with such speed, that he managed to escape with the tablets. The Holy Ark was captured by the Philistines, taken to their home city in victory. And Shaul, meanwhile, who was not yet king, had no weakly to become king later on, he returned to bring these tablets back to the Holy Temple. When he came there, he saw Amy the Kohen Godol sitting in a chair, very sad, looking forward to the worst possible, but filled with dread more about the outcome of the battle as far as the Aron, the Holy Ark, was concerned. When Eli the Kohen Gadol saw him, Eli was 98 years old at the time, extremely old, bent, very weak. He asked Shaul, this messenger, tell me the results of today's battle. Shaul was very reluctant to tell him bad news. He tried to evade having to give this report, but Eli commanded him. And so he said, I regret to inform you that the Jews have lost the battle. Many tens of thousands of Jews have been killed. But Eli replied, I'm not interested in minor details. Tell me the important points of the battle. Shoal hesitated and said, yes, your two sons were killed in this battle. Eli said, still minor details, what else? And then Shaul replied, the Aron, Kodesh, the holy ark, was taken. When Eli heard this, he fell backwards, fractured his spine, and died instantly. This news was too much for him to take. Uh, the story, of course, is a sad one, to bring in a side light. Show just, it has no bearing on the story actually, but it, it just shows the Kedusha of the Torah. Show how the Gemara learns things from every single detail mentioned in the Torah. There is a law in the dinam of Shechita, dinam of kosher slaughter, that when you kill, when you slaughter, you shecht a chicken or an animal, it must be slaughtered kosher, with a kosher chalaf, a knife, a smooth knife, a smooth sharp knife, and it must cut through the 
two simudim, the two tubes in the throat. The two tubes in the throat are the trachea and the esophagus, the conurbation. Now, beyond and back, in the rear of these two tubes is the spinal cord in the throat. If that spinal cord is broken, plus the majority of the flesh around it, Gemara says that the animal or bird or living thing is considered dead, legally, technically, actually dead. Just the spinal cord, the majority of flesh around it is broken and cut through, it is dead. Gemara asks, why does the law require the majority of flesh around it too? Well, we find a reference to this law that Eli the Kohen broke his, fractured his spine, the spinal cord, when he fell backwards, and he died instantly. So we see that just the spinal cord alone, the spinal cord, of course, reaches from the head, back of the neck, the nape until the lowest extremity of the body. One long spinal cord. And we find here that he died, though the majority of the flesh remained intact. The Imara answers it's a good question, but the fact that Eli died was due also mainly to his old age. He was very old and weak. In ordinary, normal circumstances, regular case, a person or a living thing would not die if the spinal cord was fractured. So we see that a case like this comes in handy, is referred to, even when we speak about remote cases of Hebrew law. As he said, when Eli heard this news from Shaul, who reported for the battle, King Shaul, the future King Shaul, he died at the report of the Holy Ark being captured. Despite the fact that King Shaul had rescued the tablets from the Holy Ark. Meanwhile, Eli's daughter-in-law, who was pregnant at the time, heard the news that her husband had been killed, one of Eli's sons, Pinchas, and her father-in-law had died, and the Holy Ark had been captured, and she suddenly began to feel labor pains through aggravation. She started to give birth, and the people around could see that she was dying. They said to her, don't worry, there is good news for you. It is a son. The Gemara says that if tragedy strikes a family, usually it does not strike in one time. It strikes one after the other in a family until something good happens to stop the series of tragedies. If a child is born, a son is born, this means a good sign that the tragedies are over. They told her, you need fear no longer because you've had many tragedies in your family now, but the fact that a son is being born to you be a good sign for the future. And she said, I reject this sign, so much so that I shall call this son Ikavod, a lack of honor for holiness, because the spirit of Hashem has left us, the holy ark is captured. And with this, she too passed away. Now the holy ark was taken by the Plishtim, the Philistines, to their city of Ashdod, in the city of Ashdod, they planned a big feast, a celebration, in honor of this great victory, not just the victory over the Jews, capturing land, killing so many of the Jewish soldiers, but above all, 
they had accomplished what Egypt could not. The Egyptians were smitten by Hashem. The other nations were wiped out. But here they, the Philistines, thought they had captured the Hashem of the Jews. And so they felt that they owed a debt of gratitude to their idol, who had proven superior. They brought the Holy Ark to the temple where their idol was located. The name of the idol was Dogon. Dogon means it was the shape of a fish with the head of a human, or something like a merman. It was a giant-sized idol. They placed the Holy Ark in front of this idol as an offering of thanks. The temple was locked up for the night. They left. The next morning when they came, they opened the doors of the temple. They found that their giant statue, Dogon, had fallen over face forward in the position of bowing before this holy ark. It was embarrassing, so they, they returned the idol to its former position, figuring this was a coincidence it happened through an accident of some kind. They disregarded it. The next night, they closed the temple. They came back the following morning. This time they found that the idol had fallen forward again, but the head and the palms of the idol were severed completely. The head and the palms were lying on the threshold. This time they were seriously frightened. And as they moved about, they found that people began to be stricken with a disease. Disease of a type of tumor began to grow within them. Technically, the technical term would, for this would be hemorrhoids. And strangely, we find that this disease today is not considered a serious one, especially with all the advertisements about Preparation H and so on, <laughs> these false advertisements. But at that time, they came in a different form, a much more serious form, where they would actually throttle the digestive system and this would cause a slow, painful death. Now, the uh, Philistines were so terrified by this type of disease, and this time it was certain it was the cause of the Holy Ark, they decided to get the Holy Ark out of this city, move it to a second city. They quickly had it transported to the city of Gas, another important city of the Philistines. And when it came there, the people that surrounded the Ark Two were stricken by the same disease. They moved it on to a third city. In that third city were the important officials, the princes of the different states of the tribes of the Philistines. When they saw they were stricken too, they said, we must get the Holy Ark out. But we have to find out if this is a disease that happened to strike the Philistines, or does it really come because of the Holy Ark? How can we prove this? So they asked their wise men, and the wise men advised them to place the ark on a wagon, a special wagon that was brand new, never been used before as a sign of respect for the holy ark, and let the wagon be led by two oxen, two cows. Now these two cows, cows that have small calves, place the small calves to a side, place the wagon with the cows leading it, in the direction of the Jewish city of Beshemesh. If these two cows will leave, will desert their calves to go to the section of the Jews, this will be a sign that this is from Hashem, that the Holy Ark is guiding them. 
they did this, and the Pasuk says that the cows went on a straight line to Beis Shemesh. The word straight, of course, has two meanings in Hebrew. Yashor and Shor, straight and also singing. These two cows walking along actually sang a song of praise to Hashem, a song that every one of the Philistines could hear. This gave them conclusive proof that it was the holiness of the ark that had struck at them so seriously they were very happy to escape any further punishment or harm from the ark. The wagon continued on its way until it came to Beis Shemesh. When it came there, the Jews were delighted, elated to see the holy ark return to them. So they took the wagon, they broke it up into wood, used the wood for an altar, they slaughtered the cows and used them as a carbon, a sacrifice offering to Hashem and thanks. However, they found that a plague broke out among the Jews there, a plague that took a very heavy toll. Total of over 50,000 died. 50,000 Jews. And it was more even than the enemy had, more than had died among the Philistines. The reason is, the Gemara says, because the Jews are expected to show a much deeper respect to the Holy Ark than that which is expected of the Goyim. What was their crime? A simple curiosity. They touched the Ark, they opened it to look inside. This is a flagrant disrespect to the Shekhinah, to Hashem. And so this plague struck at them till they found that they had to repent very deeply for this sin, and the plague stopped. But they could not contain any longer the holy ark. As far as they were concerned, they were not fit for it. And so it was sent from there to Giva, where it stayed for the next 20 years. At this time, Shmuel assembled, Shmuel assembled the Jews. They began to give them Musar. Musa means to speak, reprimand them, to speak harshly about how they should learn to serve Hashem properly. They should learn to have faith in Hashem, and not to have faith in their armies, and certainly not to turn to the idols of the Goyim. Here he said, you have proof. You turn to idol worship, you see how Hashem brought the enemies to a peak where they could destroy you easily. You see afterwards that Hashem could then eke out his vengeance against these same enemies. So if you are on the side of Hashem, you have nothing at all to fear. Well, the problem, of course, is that you have the Philistines who are so powerful militarily, who have killed so many of the Jewish soldiers, the best of the Jewish army, and who have captured so much of the Jewish land. In addition, I give you notice that the Philistines are at this very moment coming to attack us. This was a shock to the Jews. They were not prepared at all for battle. They were extremely weak in the military sense. They were all assembled, this vast assembly listening to Shmuel the prophet, and they heard the thunderous roar of the Philistine army bearing down upon them. Shmuel Levi said to the Jews, this is your opportunity to witness 
the power of Hashem when Hashem is on your side. As the Philistines came towards them, suddenly a deep peal of thunder was heard in the heavens, and this thunder actually descended upon the Philistines and brought such fear, panic, and confusion among them that in trying to flee it, they slaughtered one another so that the battle was won through the Philistines themselves. The battle was won by the Jews, for the Jews, with the Philistines killing each other off. When the Jews saw the defeat of the Philistines in full swing, then they too joined in battle and pursued the Philistines from city to city until they had recaptured all the lost land that the Philistines had taken from them. It was then that they finally decided to settle down peacefully and serve Hashem for the balance of the time that Shmuel the prophet was their leader. Now, at this time, it seemed there would be peace for the Jews. There was no more problem from the Philistines and automatically none from any other of the any of the other nations. The sons of Shmuel, though, followed the path of the sons of Eli. They were not fit to lead, to rule over the Jews after the passing of Shmuel and Abi. So the Jews turned to Shmuel and Abi and said to him, We accept your leadership, we admire and respect you, we consider you as for the person you are a holy person, a Nazir, a Navi, a prophet of Hashem. But you are old, and you're going to leave us. We cannot take your sons as our leaders. Therefore, we want, we not only want, but we demand that you give us a king to rule over us, just as the other nations have kings over them. Shmuel the prophet, first time became extremely angry at this statement. He turned away from the Jews. He could not speak because of his anger. And then Hashem spoke to Shmuel the prophet and said to him, don't be angry. It is not you that the Jews have forsaken, it is me. They don't want Hashem to rule over them. They want a king. However, they want the king. They've asked for it. Tell them they will have a king. So he went back to the Jews and told them, you've asked for a king, you're going to have one. But you must know the rules. The rules of a king are the rules according to the Jewish law that a king has the right to confiscate any property he desires. A king has a right to conscript into his private army any person he wishes. Any son of yours may be taken by him at random. There is no objection possible on your part. Whatever you have, he may take. There's no question of taxes to a degree. He can take everything you own. You must accept the king under those conditions. And the Jews replied, we do. We take the king with all the rules and laws attached to it, just as you say. Now the question, of course, was, why was Shmuel the prophet angry when this is one of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. The Torah says explicitly, Sol tosim olecha melech, 
it is a mitzvah for the Jews to appoint over them a king, to have a king appointed over them, and by having a king, they are fulfilling a mitzvah. If the king conducts himself properly, fulfilling his mitzvah, studying the Torah, leading them according to the, the rules of the Torah, which is our constitution, then they'll always be successful against their enemies. What was wrong with the Jews asking of Shmuel the prophet for a king when it is one of the mitzvahs of the Torah? Why was he so furious? The answer is that if they had said to Shmuel the prophet, give us a king, because the Torah says so, he would be glad to hear that request. But they said to him, give us a king, not because the Torah says so, but because we want to be like the Goyim. Give us a king like the Goyim have, leading them, we want one too. This is what made Shmuel the prophet angry, which proves, the Gemara says, that there are certain items that a person could do, which in itself are justified. In itself, they are right. In itself, they may be even righteous, commendable. Yet, they are not considered a good or a good deed or a mitzvah if the motive is a poor one. Now, for example, the Gemara says that we have laws the same as Lahavdil the Gayim. We have a law, Losignov, do not steal. Losirtsoch, do not kill. These laws, the Goyim have too. The Goyim have that as part of their laws, civil laws. They also have it as part of the mitzvahs given to them from heaven. Whether the Goyim like it or not, but there are seven mitzvahs that they must obey, just as Lahabdi the Jews must obey their 613 mitzvahs. These seven mitzvahs are basically the three main laws, Avodah Gili Arayas, Shmichas idol worship, which is forbidden for the Goyim. Idol worship meaning to worship actual idols. They are not forbidden to worship a combination. You won't go into their, their rules. But they haven't got the same uh, mitzvah of Hashem Echad as we have. They cannot worship idols. They must believe in Hashem. And they cannot commit any adulterous acts. And they cannot commit murder. These are the three basic laws. Then they have four more laws, minor ones, but as minor as they are, legally the penalty for breaking any one of these laws is death. Now, one of these, of course, is gezel, stealing. So they too have the law of Los Signov, do not steal. Now, if a Jew is asked, would you like to steal? And then his answer would be in the negative. He would say, I wouldn't. I would never dream of stealing. His reason would be because it goes against his brain. It is not proper. It is not civilized. It would harm the social life of the community he lives in. That means he would never steal, never break the law of the Torah law signal. Yet that Jew is committing a sin. Though he's abiding by the law, do not steal, he's committing a sin because it means he does not accept the mitzvah as a command from Hashem but because he is like a guy. Another Jew, an old man, poor, old, weak, defenseless Jew, would be asked, would you like to kill someone? And this old man would say, I certainly would. I'd say, who would you like to kill? And he'd say, well, my friends. 
the leaders of the community. This, of course, this happens very often. President, the vice president of the shoe I'm talking about, my competitors, and they say to him, you really would like to kill him? And he said, of course. Well, why don't you kill him? He'll say, simple, because the Torah says, lo sir I can't do because Hashem said do not kill. No other reason. But they say to him, you're lying, because we know that you wouldn't even hurt a fly. You know that you're so kind and general, so soft-hearted, you wouldn't hurt a person's feeling. How would you, how could you say that you'd be ready to kill except for one thing that contains you, that holds you back, the fact there's a mitzvah in the Torah? His reply is, that's so. Now, though he may be lying, basically, but if he maintains that, his faith in Hashem is such that he says, Hashem, if you would tell me to kill, I would do it. And we find that in the case of Shmuel the prophet. We said that Shmuel was very old, was very weak, and was very good-hearted. Shmuel the prophet would never hurt any living thing. He would never kill an insect, as is brought about the Arizal. The Arizal was, was so kind and so soft-natured that even if there was a mosquito on him, the process of hurting him, or a worse type of insect, he would never strike at it. He would never take the life of a harmful insect. In the case of Shmuel the prophet too, he would never hurt anything at all. And yet when it came to the capture of Agag, the king of Amalek, he showed that it is a mitzvah to kill the white out Amalek. He took a sword himself in his own hands, and he methodically, slowly cut, just sliced the king into four parts. Not just to stab him, get it over with, but to show this is a mitzvah and he's doing it with relish. Old man, weak, soft-hearted, could not stand the sight of blood, yet this is a mitzvah by Hashem. Kill a molek, this was like cutting a, a fish for a Shabbos. This is what's meant by abiding by the mitzvahs of Hashem. That when Hashem says, you must have kindness, compassion for a fellow Jew, or for a fellow human being, or for an animal, then the Jew must show this kindness to the furthest extent. If Hashem says, you must show cruelty, an act of achzorius, sadism, then the Jew should show that with the same feeling, the same warm feeling, and obeying this mitzvah as the mitzvah of giving charity or aiding those in need. And this is why Shmuel the prophet was upset by the request of the Jews. Because their attitude showed that it was not the mitzvah of Hashem that was guiding them, it was their own selfish feelings and their desire to assimilate, to be equal to this is the worst destruction that can occur to the Jews, the act of assimilation. The reason for the rise of the arch enemy of the Jews of all time, Hamon, was a combination of Amalek, Hamon, the, a symbol for Avodah So Benedict says Hamon's Tzav, which stands for Avodah this Hamon came, arose, 
reached a peak of greatness with the attempt to eradicate completely the Jewish people, worse than even Paro, Paro's attempt, was due to the fact that the Jews partook of the meal of Achashverosh. Just participating in that meal was the beginning, the first step in assimilation. The Gemara says it is forbidden for a Jew ever to sit down to a meal with Goyim, because the first step is to eat, enjoy the meal, second step is to drink together, third step is to speak of intermarriage, between their relative, their related children. And this brings about to assimilation, and that is why eating together with a goy at a feast or a meal is considered already the sin of assimilation. And that's what Shmuel feared. If the Jews, who know that he was about to leave them, are already talking about turning away to assimilate, to be like the Goyim, this could mean their destruction. Until Hashem said to Shmuel the prophet, Tell them they can have their wish. But as far as they're being in danger, you need not fear, because the, the king will be the very first king of the Jews. He will be chosen by Hashem. I will send this king to you. You wait where you are. He'll be sent to come to your home. It was here that we find a rise of the first king of the Jews, King Shaul, who was so pure a tzaddik that he is one of the few ever to be called, titled by the Torah as Shaul HaTzadik. He was so pure too that the day of his passing, he was as pure, the Torah says, as a newly born child, a child one year old. And the story of Shaul, as we said, begins uh, in the time of the first battle of the Philistines, when he rescued the, the tablets, but they risked his own life. And with this, he proved himself worthy of earning the title King of the Jews, especially the very first King of the Jews. The reason that he did not retain this kingdom for his descendants will come to in the next chapter. Meanwhile, the moral the story for us is a twofold one. As Hashem said to Shmuel the prophet, it is not you that they have forsaken, it is me. And therefore we find that Hashem was not angry. Note this point, that Nosazal points this out. Again and again we find throughout the Torah, in his last words in the Zohar Kodesh, the very last words of the day of his passing, said, Hashem is much more particular about the respect that a Jew gives to a tzaddik, much more than the respect that a Jew gives to Hashem himself. As we mentioned, the case which we Yechoyzal brings, that Yerovah ben Avot, the first king of the ten tribes of Israel, who revolted, rebelled against the son of King Solomon, who drew the Jews away from the Holy Temple, <coughs> and led them into idol worship. He was a chotei umachtei, sin, and caused all other Jews to commit sins. And he himself built an altar, uh, stood upon that altar, sacrificing to an idol. The prophet Ado came towards him, 
began to reprimand him, scold him, to warn him. And as Rabban Avot's anger rose, he reached out to strike the prophet Ado. And the Torah says, Vativa Shiodo. His hand shrank. A miracle. His hand shriveled up. He cried out in horror, and he asked the prophet to pray for him, and his hand was cured. Says, note. Note that here Yerubin Avot was using both hands in an action directly against Hashem. He was using both hands to offer a sacrifice to an idol. Did his hands shrink? Did anything happen to him? Nothing whatsoever. Hashem allowed him to continue. This did not infuriate heaven. But the moment he reached out his hand to strike the tzaddik that day, Adah Hanavi, this brought down the anger of heaven upon Yeravah Benavot, and immediately his hand shrank, proving that Hashem is more particular about the covenant of a tzaddik, even more so than the covenant of Hashem. This was the message here too, and Hashem said to Shemua Hanavi, if they were against you, I would avenge your covenant immediately. It's not in opposition to you, and therefore have patience. We should be zochet to understand the Kedusha of the Tzadik Emes, who is the one that binds us to Hashem and to the Torah. And if we do, we'll be Zohar to see the ultimate victory for all Jews, the return of the Am Yisrael to Eretz Yisrael with everlasting peace, with the coming of Mashiach Tzadkenu, the ultimate king of the Jews, who will be with us forever. Wir werden besser weg, das schon heiter, wir werden auf dem Weg, wir werden.